Okay, so we'll ask our uh, speakers to uh, come up here. Uh, there's uh, microphones back there. We would ask that you uh, use the microphone. Uh, state your name. Uh, if you have a short comment and a uh, question, we don't want long editorial comments. Uh, get to the point and give, uh, give your question. So thank you. Hello, my name is Henning Mundell. Um, as Diane, this is a question for you. As you know, I've been involved quite a bit with international development, both working overseas and with helping uh, groups uh, fund projects. And one of the uh, things that has developed o over the years as a guideline, uh, and CETA has this very much as a guideline, is that the um, beneficiaries of any project need to be involved at every stage of the development. Would you mind outlining a bit how the homeless people have been involved in this process that has been developed here in Lesbridge? Probably you, can, you can do that. That's an excellent question, uh, Henning, and thank you very much. Uh, right at the uh, homeless shelter, there is a group that we, we utilize on a, on, a, on a regular basis. Uh, the group comes and goes, but it does give us feedback on, on how, how are we doing. Um, and then I'm going to also, um, and we do survey them on a regular, on a, on a basis when we do our homeless census. Uh, we ask them questions about what's keeping you from finding housing, what's keeping you from uh, making different changes in your life. So we do have that data available. Uh, what we also do is that when we've had community consultations, uh, people that have experienced homeless or in the are, are experiencing homeless are also involved and, and are certainly invited. Um, as well, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Deb because I know that um, the people that they're uh, serving also have opportunities for input. Uh, yeah, just very quickly, I think that uh, one of the things that we're doing um, is having the opportunity to get a lot of the feedback that we see firsthand with our frontline workers. And that information then comes back into a lot of our interagency meetings. And wherever we see gaps in services, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of dialoguing with Alberta Employment and Immigration, um, with ADAC, etc. So that information is then being fed into government as well when we're seeing gaps in our community. And I think that probably the it's extremely valuable information in that the individuals who are sharing it are trusting uh, the workers and often people don't feel too comfortable in large groups giving feedback so I think for us that's been an opportunity for us to be able to bring very valuable information forward. Barbara Lacey. Um, Deb, I, I don't know whether it's Deb or Diane I should ask this to but obviously one of the keys to this program and important keys is having the, the housing available when you need it to be able to move these people in. And yet one of the things you said, Diane, was that our vacancy rate is only 0.6%. And I'm wondering how you've managed to achieve access to the housing when we have such a low vacancy rate and whether you could expand a bit on how you get the housing and, how you, and, the, and, the, and the reaction of the landlords too. That's just an excellent question, and if you'll recall, we did uh, who, who's benefiting from this Housing First model. Uh, the city was very fortunate to have access to the Village Inn. If you'll recall, that's where the, the new fire hall is going to be. So when we first started out our Housing First, we had access to 
to the Village Inn for some of uh, some of the clients for Housing First, and it provided an opportunity for stabilization. Um, now we utilize other other ways and means for stabilization units, whether it be crisis beds or whether it be um, motel. We have used motel units uh, as well. Um, but I'm going to let Deb talk about the relationships that they've been able to build with landlords in the city. Thank you. Yeah, I think the key um, is with the team and the fact that they have been doing a lot of work in building uh, relationships with our landlords to the point now where landlords will call our team before they will go to the open market to let people know that they've got something available. But I think, as Diane said, one of our biggest challenges is looking at that rapid housing or um, the type of housing that we can keep people safe to give the team enough time to find appropriate affordable housing for them. And so we've had to be very creative around those kind of things, and that's everything from putting people up in hotels, um, you know, and covering the costs of that until we can get them placed. And those are the kind of things that we've had to do. But I have to say that um, there's wonderful landlords, very many wonderful landlords in this community, and also um, management uh, bodies that are that are re- managing a lot of these rental properties that have been absolutely phenomenal with us. And they'll even go to the extent of if we've got one family that needs to go into a larger place, we can negotiate with them and they'll let us know when the place comes open, they'll hold it until we can place them. So it's been wonderful. And it really, it's at a community level, it's those networks that we've been able to put together. I just want to also reiterate what Deb spoke about earlier is the relationship that we have with Lethbridge Housing. Um, they have been, the housing specialists have been absolutely pivotal in ensuring that our, our folks are able to get into housing as quickly as possible. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Uh, thank you both for your presentation. I have one very short question and then a follow-up, if I may. Um, I noticed that during your presentation you said that 60, there was a 60% increase in homelessness in Lethbridge since 2007. But I wonder if you can tell us how many people are actually homeless, how many, what, what is the number of people who are actually homeless today, both on the streets and in the shelters. If you could answer that, then I'll come with my question. Okay. Thanks. Uh, right now, between uh, the agencies, which would be like the emergency shelter, the youth shelter, Harbor House, um, and some of the other uh, agencies that, that house people, uh, plus those on the street, uh, we totaled 276 actual bodies that night. Okay, remember that this is, this is um, a, a, just a point in time. We, we don't know. Uh, for sure. It's not a finite or an absolute number. Those are the people that we had an opportunity to come into contact with that evening. Um, but what we also saw, and it may, they may or may not be included, were the number of sites that we saw that people were sleeping rough, whether it be, be beside big garbage bins, whether it be in the coolies, in a tent, in a vacated. Uh, and there's a lot of hidden homeless as well. Um, and I think what I did comment on is that it, some research says that 80% uh, are, are, not, are not visible, right? Thanks. Well, that seems to be quite a large number yes. for a little city like ours. Yes. And if homelessness was declared a national disaster yes. in 1998, how come it's taken so long to really address it? Okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to <laughs> try and go back a few years. 
Uh, when that was a declaration in 1998, what happened as a result of that is that in the year 2000, the federal government uh, determined that there needed to be a national homelessness strategy. And it was at that point that uh, SHIA was developed to be the community advisory board, city of Lethbridge being the community entity. And so we've been working with the federal government since that, since that time, as well as the provincial government also uh, provided uh, funding for, for uh, communities to be able to respond to homelessness. What has happened in, in 10 years, I think we're getting better at identifying homelessness. I think we're getting, but you know that in Canada, we have a housing crisis, uh, that it's not just, it's not just Lethbridge, but it is, is cross Canada. Um, why does it take so long? Because, uh, it just, we're seeing an increase because of the levels of poverty. We're seeing increases because of, for many reasons that I disclosed in the presentation. If I may, um, just quickly, I want to add on to that too. If the fact that 40% of the referrals for our uh, team have come from directly from the shelter, so that really does speak to how many home, are actually homeless. Yeah. Hi, my name is Pat Greenlee. I, it, my husband and I get up early every morning and go for a walk down in the coolies. And in the summertime, we are often aware that there are people, or at least one particular person, sleeping in a sleeping bag out on top of one of those hills. What, what is our, I mean, if we see this person face to face, we always say good morning and, and that's it. But is there something else we should be doing? Doing? Should we be calling social services and saying, you know, there's this person out there? Are they slipping through the cracks? What what should people, what should people's course of action be? Uh, at this at this time, there's there. I think there's two or three things that you could do. Um, one is if you were to call the Pathways to Housing Outreach Team. They have gone and, and connected with people on the street or in the coolies or where they might receive a referral. Anyone can refer to the Pathways team. The other one is to call the shelter, and they also have a mobile urban street team that's also an outreach team that may make connection with, with that person. Um, but you can always ask, is there something that, that you need that we can assist you with or to get you, get you connected? And that's always an opportunity as well. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you both for coming here. And I really laud you for coming up with a Made in Lethbridge program model that perhaps will be adopted in other places, not only in Alberta, but in Canada. Terrific. Um, I'd like to know the assumptions underlying the housing facilities themselves because what I've seen with other housing groups, such as Habitat for Humanity, that it's based on more a middle-class model of housing, assuming that people will be able to budget, <clears throat> pay their fees on time, pay their rent, um, exist in standalone housing. I don't mean a house, but standalone as an apartment, whereas maybe we should be looking at facilities such as we look at more towards the end of life where there's... Um, um, where you have a room or a couple of rooms and then you can get your meals made for you and other things. So I'm just wondering what kind of assumptions underlie the housing? 
If you will uh, note, the, one of the first goals that, that is to increase the, the housing opportunities uh, in Lethbridge. That does not necessarily mean single-family dwellings or an apartment or whatever. We have some significant needs in the community or for different population groups that could easily address uh, some of the homelessness issues. Uh, one of them is that a number of our homeless people are aging. And nothing is more more um, difficult than to watch a 76-year-old arthritic man trying to get down onto a mat. We have a desperate need for um, a facility that that is uh, that can care for aging homeless population who are dealing with chronic addictions, chronic uh, disease, and end of life uh, end of life uh, conditions. Um, so that is that is one of the things that we have been negotiating and working with um, with the Chinook Health, but it's not Chinook Health anymore. It's uh, Alberta Health. So that's that's one of the populations. Housing First uh, has been it's de been demonstrated that there's 15% of the homeless population that we cannot address using the Housing First model, and that chronic aging homelessness would be one of them. Um, another population group is our, our Aboriginal population who is making the transition from reserve life into urban life. And for that population, it, uh, research has shown that that population needs may need congregate living uh, for about a year before they can transition into their own home. So that's why we have the Native Women's Transition Home, and that's why we're also promoting the Native Men's Transition Home. Um, in terms of uh, also youth, is another sector that we're addressing a, a supported housing for youth initiative with the YWCA. So there's also uh, women leaving family violence, uh, and their children also need to have something called second stage housing, where it's a safe, secure environment for them for a year while they get their life built back. Um, and they're able to do that. So it reduces the number of times that a woman goes back into a violent situation. So those are the five major projects that we're working on that, that is over and above the housing first. Um, it's very complex. There's no magic bullet. There's no one thing that's going to address homelessness. It requires um, policy that addresses all of those issues. I think that's the beauty of your model is that it is multifaceted and that it's delinked itself with the Southern Alberta Calvinistic model of punit a punitive model. So I guess I'm asking about the people who have greater incapacities, such as fetal alcohol effects or fetal alcohol syndrome. What is being done to help people who, perhaps because of incapacity, they, not age, but incapacity, can't take care of themselves on an ongoing basis? Um, I think Diane uh, addressed some of the 15% the that we've shown in uh, research with Housing First Model that it does not work with them. However, um, a, a number of those uh, individuals that do fit within that population have been help, helped through the Housing First Model. And again, it's no different than uh, the, the, I think, the underlying theory and proven uh, model here is that it's the wraparound services. So once you get them into the house, part of that is advocating for the right services. And a lot of the difficulties with um, dealing with the fetal alcohol syndrome and the spectrums is is making sure that they've got the right services in place to keep them in their homes. And a lot of times it's a matter of getting through all of the different systems that in order to ha make that happen. And so I think that there's still some potential for some great deal of success for them living independently if they do have adequate support services. Thank you very much. 
I just want to add to that our city council is tenacious about making sure that we reduce that homelessness and about increasing housing stock. And, and so she has been able to work extremely well uh, with them in, in, in to implement our strategic plan. Hi, my name is James Moore. I just want to ask one question, but first of all, I want to give some context before I ask. Uh, it took exactly three months for the federal government to pony up $125,000 million to help out the banks in Canada. And the federal government has said they're going to spend $490,000 million on the military in the next 20 years, equal to the national debt. What sort of funding uh, do you get? And if you know, can you speak to the national level of this uh, national disaster since 1998? Thanks. Thank you very much. We are the recipients. Uh, the City of Lethbridge is the recipient of both federal and provincial funding. Um, and one is through the, the Homelessness Partnership, Partnership Strategy, and that's our federal funding through, um, uh, through Service Canada. We're also fortunate to have uh, funding through the provincial government, uh, through Housing and Urban Affairs, both in the form of the Homelessness Initiative, but also in terms of affordable housing grants, um, as well as our innovative uh, funding for the Housing First model to be able to demonstrate the impact that it can have. Um, so that's the funding that uh, uh, the city receives and Social Housing in Action receives. Um, from the federal government, we receive approximately, in the HPS funding, approximately 400000 a year. For the Homeless Initiative through the province, approximately 200000 a year. And we have the affordable housing grants, and I'm going to go, I'm going to dig here. It's about $8 million over the last uh, three years. Graham Greenlee, uh, Diane and Deb. Uh, just wondering uh, if a lot of the people you are helping are learning how to become more self-sufficient or sustainable on their own, uh, such as... Uh, obtaining more secure long-term employment or finding out how to get training so they can attain uh, more sustainable employment. Could you comment on that, please? Thank you. An excellent question, too. Um, I, I think one of the things that we are finding is that when people do get in their housing and they've got their services in place and the supports and... Um, they're in a place where they're feeling comfortable. They are getting reconnected to employment. They're getting uh, rehooked up with training programs, um, with family too. And that's a very important part too. Is what we're seeing is a lot of people are reconnecting with their family and with the community as a whole. And um, so they're going back to work um, again, uh, going back to school, all those kind of things that they really couldn't do when they were homeless. So, yeah, I think that that's an excellent question because it's a key component of what we do. I'm Gordon Campbell. It's good to see that this vexatious question is in such competent hands. I, I want to make two comments only that are technical sort of in order because one of the, is your use of the word home as against shelter. So often my mind was twisted a little bit because a home means something more than a shelter. And I think the word homeless is a, 
it's not always an advantage to use that word because we mean something different than what we generally conceive as the meaning of the word home. But my central question is this, and maybe you might think this is a naive question, and I'm quite out of, out of it. But shouldn't a society as rich as ours, burdened as so many are with a conscience, say to the city council, we cannot allow any human being to sleep on the ground, in the snow, anywhere, at night, in this community. We are too rich a community, and we care too much about individuals to allow that situation to happen. So that every night at 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock, whatever, the truck goes around and picks up all of these people who are everywhere and takes them somewhere. Without rhyme or reason, they're there, and so they have to be out of there because the law does not allow you to freeze to death or to starve to death or to go unsought for. We say as a principle of living in this rich community, we can't allow that to happen. Mr. Campbell, thank you very much for your comment. Um, just to let you know, when we've had such cold, cold weather, that our mobile urban street team does exactly that. They are out and available and about to take people to the shelter. Uh, but can you force someone into a vehicle in the summertime if they choose not to? No, we can't. Okay. Is it acceptable? No, it isn't. What's the right thing to do? Housing. Thank you. Okay, I think that will uh, end our discussions today. Uh, we want to thank both uh, Diane and Deborah for a fine presentation, and uh, thank you very much.